welcome to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on literature, art, and film. I'm Andrew Zwerneman, your host. In this episode, it is my deep honor to interview the distinguished scholar Gary Saul Morrison, Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University, where he teaches literature and Slavic languages. Our topic is the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, his life and work. The occasion is a very special one, the bicentennial anniversary of Dostoevsky's birth. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Professor Morrison kindly joins us from his office at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Professor Morrison, uh, so good to have you join us here at Kane Academy as we celebrate the bicentennial anniversary of Dostoevsky's birth. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. <clears throat> I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for everyone at, uh, at our mission and everyone in our audience, primarily uh, who is uh, teachers, uh, and we desperately very much would like to hear what you had to say about Dostoevsky as a writer and uh, to hear uh, something about his life. And, and on that, I thought we could, we could start. So can you tell us a little bit about the life of Dostoevsky? Where was he born? Uh, who were his parents? Uh, where did he grow up? Uh, what kind of education did he have? Those kinds of things. Sure. Um, he was born, well, as you mentioned, two centuries ago in 1821. Um, his father <clears throat> was a doctor in a military hospital. There were a lot of <clears throat> people who weren't terribly stable there. Um, and uh, his mother was quite devout. Um, his, uh, <clears throat> he, his father intended him and his brother to go to a school of military engineering in the capital. He was going to design fortresses and things of that sort. Neither he nor his brother, Michael, um, wanted to do this. They both loved poetry and literature. And um, there's a wonderful story of um, Dostoevsky as a student in this school uh, designing a fortress which unfortunately had no doors or windows so that it would have to be built around the defender who would never get out <clears throat> and when this absurd <clears throat> drawing happened to come to the attention of the Tsar Nicholas I who wrote <clears throat> on the drawing what idiot did this <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, he uh, wrote his first work, a novella called Poor Folk, a novel in letters. Um, it was an exploration of poverty, as the title said, but not of the material aspects of poverty or the social causes of poverty, but the psychological effects of poverty. Uh, what really interested him was the way in which people can be Humiliated. He has a, a novel called The Insulted and the Humiliated, and he is the master at understanding that feeling. And poverty is one of the things that can destroy one's sense of self-worth, <clears throat> get one feel you know, <clears throat> humiliated. He wasn't interested in the social aspects of it so much. Um, the book um, enormously appealed to the leading critic at the time, Vissarion Belinsky, who proclaimed that he was, you know, the Russia's new literary genius. Uh, but Bielinski didn't so much like his next <clears throat> works because Bielinski wanted social criticism and Dostoevsky was doing something else. Um, <clears throat> but Dostoevsky did get involved in a kind of radical society. He wasn't a radical, really, um, except on one issue. Um, Russia still had serfs, uh, serfdom at the time. Yes. And serf was basically almost indistinguishable from a slave. In fact, they were referred to <coughs> slaves. I mean, even though legally they were serfs. And, you know, they could be bought and sold. They, they could be lost at cards <coughs> and frequently were. Um, and, and, and across the population of Russia at the time, how many, how many Russians were serfs? About 70% of the population, <clears throat> maybe a little more. Um, there were two types of serfs. Some were owned by noblemen, 
and but many were also owned by the crown, by the czar himself. They worked directly for the for the crown. Um, the um, Dostoevsky passionately wanted this institution eliminated, and that's how he got involved in this radical discussion group. But <clears throat> the group was. It was more <clears throat> discussion groups. There was a secret part of it that was planning actual revolutionary activity, and he was part of that. That was not known by the czars, even when he was arrested for this, when, when they infiltrated the group and arrested. They didn't know how deeply involved he was. Um, but um, he was arrested. He spent eight months in the Peter and Paul fortress, not knowing his fate. And then... Um, one day, in December of 1849, he was told that he would be executed. And this is, everybody in Russia knew the story of each other. In fact, there's a myth of Dostoevsky's life. That doesn't mean it's untrue, but it's, I mean, it's a legend that everybody knew. Certain facts about his life, and this is one of them. This is the most sensational, sensational of them. He was, and he constantly described it himself ever afterwards. He was led out to the Senate Square with a handful of other prisoners. They were, a sentence of death was read over them. <clears throat> they were offered last rites. The first group was taken to be lined up and shot. Dostoevsky would have been in the second group. And the order was given they were offered blindfolds. The order was given to train the gun. At the last possible moment, an imperial courier came galloping up to say that in his infinite mercy, the Tsar had um, commuted their sentence to a certain number of years in a prison camp, followed by service in the army as a private. But Dostoevsky spent that period absolutely convinced he was going to die and constantly in his novels people describe what it is like to think you are going to die in the next few minutes he went what happens to your mind the consciousness speeds up he <clears throat> the descriptions are just simply amazing right and no one else you know had ever ever done that and, and has ever since it was part it's it's worth knowing that um it wasn't an accident that the courier galloped up. This had all been planned in advance as part of the punishment. Okay. Um, of the people who were um, standing there expecting to be killed, to be shot, um, one of them had his hair <coughs> turn white on the spot. Another went mad and never recovered his sanity. And a third went on to write crime and punishment. Okay. <clears throat> he then spent um, those years in the Siberian prison camp, <clears throat> after which um, he had those years as a, as a private in, in the army. And a lot happened in these years. First of all, he had the amazing experience of being in a prison camp with people utterly unlike those he had ever known. As in many countries, but probably especially in Russia, you know, intellectuals have a tendency to speak in the name of the people, but they didn't know a thing about them. Now, that was particularly true in Russia where the gap between the educated and, and the peasants was so large. And he, here he was meeting the common people, in, in the form of criminals, but or the guards. And they were utterly unlike what his, you know, socialist propaganda that he had believed um, had said. They had, there were nothing like it. And he realized that these people who claimed to speak for ordinary people don't know anything about them. That was one thing he realized. Another was that he had this dawning realization about human nature, which was to shape everything else he ever did. And that is that even more important to people than anything material, than their material welfare, than their security, 
is the sense that they are human beings, meaning they have some control over their own destiny. To reduce someone to with no control whatsoever, to a, to a complete object, basically, is to destroy their humanness. More than anything else, people need to feel they have freedom. Okay. And he came to the conclusion, this is going to shape his political views, that this is what the socialists do not understand. Because they view, socialists were materialists at, at the time, they viewed people as purely material objects with material needs that you could satisfy by nationalizing the property or something like that, right? Um, you know, they believed, in fact, that man lived by bread alone, right? Um, and he realized that much more important than that is the sense of control over one's own destiny. So he describes, he wrote a novel about this called Notes from the House of the Dead. Um, it's a thinly fictionalized account of his own experience. And, you know, he describes things like prisoners who would, for no reason, suddenly attack a guard. Now, they knew that the punishment would be flogging, sometimes to death, right? And there was no reason they did it. And he, he realized they did it simply so that they could do something that wasn't predictable, that was their own, right? And he saw this manifesting itself over and over again in different ways. And then that became how he described human beings, you understand, as having this deep desire to, to recognize themselves as agents, not just as objects. Right? And, and were, the, were the prisoners that you described as uh, of the common people, were, <laughs> were they among them? Were there serfs? Were they among the poorest of the poor in Russia? Or when you say common men, do you mean something else? No, I mean, a lot of them would have been um, you know, serfs who had committed some crime <coughs> were sent to prison. I mean, that, that would have been a lot of them. Um, you know, they were all, <coughs> all serfs, but some of them would have been ex-serfs. You know, some of them would have been, um, you know, there was one, you know, as he describes it, there was one Jew. <coughs> Jews weren't serfs, but they lived in the Pale of Settlement. Yeah. There were some Polish exiles, because Poland had rebelled, you know, against Russia and several people had been sent to Siberia. Um, there were a couple of, you know, Muslims who had not been serfs, but had been kind of in a dependent position. <clears throat> All sorts of people, but a lot of ex-serfs. But they, they were um, convicted as criminals. Some of them, Dostoevsky was convinced, were actually innocent. Um, but they had been convicted as criminals. And in fact, listening to them, he realized something else about human nature that he would never have occurred to him before. And, you know, the, the governing view, we still sometimes hear it, is that, you know, people commit crime because of bad social conditions. They, they, they don't, nobody loves crime. They do it because they're hungry, because they're needy, because something of that sort, right? Well, he found people, criminals, who had spoke about how much they had loved to torture children. It was fun. No, it, he discountered evil and sadism in a way he had never expected. And he encountered among some of the guards, too, who loved to beat the prisoners. Okay. On both sides, he encountered, he, he discovered the evil of human nature in a way that, you know, nice social theories that he had accepted would never have told him. So, in, in, so would it, anyways, it changed his whole view of the world. Yeah. Would it, would it be fair to say that he, he works out that encounter or, or, or his experience of, of that kind of evil uh, through his novels. So for example, we have um, the, the willful criminality of Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment. We, and then we have, you know, Ivan uh, uh, Karamazov, who's so tormented by the, uh, the, the cruelty that some people commit against the innocent. Um, it, it, and, and so insofar as the stories uh, work out and, and put flesh on the bones of, you know, how uh, people encounter evil, is, is there a sense in which Dostoevsky is working through that himself? Well, the, the Ivan Karamazov's stories about the torture of children are in this vein. That is, you know, people love torturing children for its own sake, for the fun of it. Um, 
Raskolnikov is different. I mean, Raskolnikov isn't a sadist. He is an intellectual. And believe it or not, the worst crimes are committed not by the sadists, but by intellectuals in possession of an idea. An idea that says, I have the right to kill because <clears throat> there's no such thing as good and evil, because I'm a revolutionary, I'm going to bring <clears throat> happiness to all, all humanity, and then the killing never That's why he was able, uniquely, the only person in the 19th century who predicted what totalitarianism would be. In detail, not just generally, but in concrete, you know, things that you think, you know, let's say we're in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, they, <clears throat> you think, described in detail, in advance, um, how could he know? And the answer was he took seriously the ideology of revolutionary intellectuals and asked what those people would do if they actually had power. Well, Raskolnikov has the kills on one of these theories, and his, you know, his has several theories, but the most important one is that extraordinary people, like himself, or even more extraordinary people, have the right to control, dictate to, and kill if they need to, ordinary people to achieve um, some sort of social good. Okay. That is, and Dostoevsky recognized, ideologies can change. You can be a populist, you can be, you know, a <clears throat> Marxist, you can be any number of <clears throat> revolutionary ideas, but the one thing that doesn't change among intellectuals is the belief that they are the superior people of the right to dictate to and control the lives or take the lives of others, if need be. And he realized that that will fit any, any radical ideology because it appeals to their desire to be the superior people you know, and for power. Um, do, you, do you consider that, or did Dostoevsky consider that to be a, a um, a distinctly or even a uniquely modern expression. We've had Prometheus for a long time, uh, taking you know control of more than what he uh, uh, you know deserves or more than it was warranted. But but is this um, is this working out of an ideology uh, to Dostoevsky's mind and, and to your interpretation of Dostoevsky a, a uniquely modern one? Yeah, you asked a really good question. There are two things that really make what he was describing about different from what it, almost everything happened before. One was, you know, we get the word intelligentsia from Russia. It was coined there around 1860. That's the time I was writing these novels. Um, but it didn't indicate educated people. You didn't have to be educated. And if you were educated, you weren't necessarily a member of the intelligentsia. Like, Leo, no one would have thought of Leo Tolstoy as a member of the intelligentsia. Because you had to share a certain, first of all, you had to have a sense that this was your identity. You were not a nobleman who read books. You were a member of the intelligentsia. <clears throat> that was you. It superseded all other identities, right? Um, and secondly, you had to believe in one or another revolutionary ideology. <clears throat> you know, usually, you know, some form of socialism or anarchism or, or communism or, you know, populism, but revolutionary and violent. Okay. Um, if you didn't believe that, if, you know, you know, if you, if your identity was not as an intelligentsia, or if you believed in God, and you had to be an atheist to be a member of the intelligentsia, then you weren't a member. So, you know, for two reasons, at least, Leo Tolstoy, who loses, who used his title of count, and believed in God, could not, no one would have thought of him. Whereas someone who has not barely read a book, but believed the right ideology, would be. Right? Um, so it's that sense of identity. In, in that sense, England at the time, England at the beginning of the 20th century, America at this time, had no intelligentsia. It had educated people, but they didn't have a sense of being an intelligentsia. But you, the really dangerous thing happens when you get something, a real intelligentsia with a consciousness, <clears throat> something like, um, you know, the Russian intelligentsia re resembling it, right? Um, you know, we have, <clears throat> it's much more the case now in the U.S. and Britain and France, you know, that you have 
that sense there, where educated people don't think of themselves as, oh, well, you know, first of all, I'm a bourgeois, and only second of all, I read books. They have this identity with each other. Right? Not to the Russian extent, but it's something resembling it, right? Um, secondly, you, what, you have to be governed by an ideology, and, uh, and that doesn't mean just a set of ideas. It means a set of ideas that have, that pretend to really scientifically understand the world and society and offer it the power and means to utterly transform it according to your belief, right? That's an ideology kind of, kind of system. Um, and it's that, you understand, the idea that you can save humanity, and you are certain to do it because you have the right theory, that licenses you to kill as many people as possible because they're just standing in the way of utopia, which is what the, you know, <clears throat> the Bolsheviks were going to do, and Dostoevsky predicted in advance, because he saw the mindset. You didn't have to be a Bolshevik. You know, <clears throat> if one of these other groups that he talked about had gained power, <clears throat> they had the same mindset. Yeah. Well, how do, how do we anticipate that, or how do we see how Dostoevsky anticipates that, say, in The Brothers Karamazov? Because we have we have ideas in play. So that we have the gathering right at the monastery and uh, Yvonne's theory is, is on display. And that's a kind of a, the, the form of that argument is kind of a church-state argument. Uh, it's, it's unique, uh, perhaps, to a, a Russian mentality. But what I'm interested in is uh, picking up on what you just said, how, say, in the Brothers Karamazov, do we see that Dostoevsky is anticipating what's going to happen in the 20th century. I wouldn't say you'd look at the Karamazov for that. Okay. I mean, the novel where he does it most extensively is The Possessed, which is a novel about revolutionaries. That, it's, that's where you get these amazing predictions. But you get hints of it, for example, also in Crime and Punishment. Remember um, where the detective, Porfiry Petrovich, you know, listening to Raskolnikov's theory about how extraordinary people have the right to transgress the law and kill others, right? Mm -hmm. um, says, you know, you know, it's a good thing that um, you did, you know, this theory was not around for others, and to the point, it could, its consequences could be a lot worse than a couple of murders. <clears throat> that is, he's predicting, and he sees the implication of it being not just a couple of murders, but a lot of <clears throat> murders, right? So that there's, <clears throat> and you know, there's hints of the revolutionaries going on. You know, there are the fires that they talk about, which were supposedly set by the revolutionaries. Nobody really knows. Um, you know, um, there are several allusions, you know, to the revolutionaries in the book. Um, now, Rostrovsky was not a revolutionary, but um, the idea that, but the revolutionaries were people with an ideology like him, but he was not. There's no indication he directly was a revolutionary, and I don't think that's the point. Um. Uh, listen, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about his life. Is it is it true that the village uh, in which the Brothers Karamazov is set was based on a village where Dostoevsky lived, or, or is that yeah. well, the name not there's a nearby place. That is mentioned in Karamazov called Chermashchny. You know, Fyodor Pavlovich, the father, wants to send Ivan to run a, an errand to Chermashchny. Um, and near the place where he was growing up, you know, in, in the country, um, there was a place called Chermashchny. So he took the name. <clears throat> but there's no real connection there. No. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's just a name. I, at least I don't know of any connection beyond that. What about um, any kind of a relationship with. Um a spiritual elder, a mentor along the lines of a father Zazima. Did, did Dostoevsky have a relationship as, say, Alyosha had with Father Zazima or something comparable? Oh, I mean, he had this, you know, deep respect for elders, and, and there was a well-known elder at the time, um, you know, to which various important people to, you know, to try to get a meeting with. Um, but he had, that, that was not, I mean, he developed his faith Again, it's one of the things he developed in Siberia. When he, what came along with his idea that you cannot describe people as purely material beings, you know, the way the atheists and materialists and socialists would. A renewal of his faith in the, in the spiritual aspect of people. And he begins to see that, you know, um, 
the Christian worldview, as he interprets it, um, acknowledges not just human freedom, but the enormous complexity of the human psyche. Whereas, then the revolutionaries had a very simple view, you know, everybody always acts according to their own self-interest, and we just change their view of their self-interest, they will always do the right thing. People are very simple. He said, all utopians must think that people are simple. How could there be a simple formula for making them all happy? It's always the case, not you know, just with Russian utopia. All utopians think this, right? And anti-utopians and people like to cite Dostoevsky because he has the exact opposite view. People are amazingly complex. You can't pin them down. If you could pin them down, they'd be nothing but objects. And they resent the thought that they could pin down. You see? And he, he sees this idea of the complexity of people and their psychology. This is how he interprets Christianity. And that's the interpretation of Christianity you get in Karamazov. I mean, um, you know, you have this character, Rakitin, who's this typical materialist. <laughs> oh, people are all simple. We'll all get together. We'll all be rational and great, make <clears> the <throat> great society. Oh, 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 you know. Um, <clears throat> and then you get all this incredibly complex psychology. You know, I mean, the, the key idea that comes across, the way that moves a plot in Karamazov is a Christian idea, which he's trying to illustrate. Um, you know, Ivan says to Alyosha, no, I would, I will always protect father, but in my wishes, I reserve myself full latitude. I can wish him dead. I just won't do anything about it. Now, you understand, that's precisely contradicting the Sermon on the Mount, right? Which says, <clears throat> not only actions have more value, but wishes, right? <clears throat> You've been heard it said, do not kill. I say, do not even wish to kill. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust, right? Of course, the action can be worse than the wish. The murder and the anger are not the same, but they both have moral value. And what happens is that Smerdyakov ensnares Ivan in this plot without Ivan fully realizing it. Though he could realize it, but his wishes prevent him from really examining what Smerdyakov is saying. Because he wants it to happen. He wants, we very often want evil to happen against our will, so we have an alibi for it. So we arrange for it to happen contradict to our will, but we will it to happen contradictory to our will. And that's what Smerdyakov gets Ivan to do. And afterwards, he realizes that he is morally responsible, which is to say he realizes the truth that for Dostoevsky is already in Christianity. And he does say, for Dostoevsky, he thinks that in Christianity, <clears throat> therefore Christianity realizes the complexity of you know, the human psyche where, you know, and how our wishes shape it. <clears throat> Christianity certainly recognizes the moral value of wishes, whether it recognizes you know, the psychology Dostoevsky sees in it to explain that, that that's another question, but Dostoevsky certainly saw that there. Um, and so that's why, you know, you can say the book is, um, he hoped to make it, you know, the world's greatest Christian novel. Of course, you don't have to read it that way, but that's that's one of the ways he meant it. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and within that, um, so, so what are some good ways uh, for uh, teachers and students to think about that in terms of uh, some of the other characters. So that, that was a great example that you gave of um, Ivan and, and uh, uh, you know in, in the, his his the conflict between his wishes and what he actually does and what he can't hear because of his wishes. That that is a really good example um, of, of all the characters. It it um, you know it looks like Father Zazama is the most free. Free in the in the sense that you were talking about earlier when Dostoevsky said, you know, that you know, just when you when you get when you drill down to the to the the core of uh, the human person, you know, freedom's right there. But also in terms of kind of a coherence between wish, between action, between wish and action and thought and what you're hearing and what you're able to see, it seems like Zazama looks pretty free, uh, you know. And it, so, is there, is there a sense in which? Uh, the reader sort of keeps an eye on uh, sort of the, the uh, Zosima is sort of the clearest example of, of freedom and then looks at the other characters that to varying degrees of, you know, struggling to get there or varying degrees of, uh, you know, a lack of freedom. 
Yes, I mean, although he, he doesn't speak of it in terms of freedom, he speaks of it in terms of making the right choices moment by moment, which of course implies freedom. But uh, he being um, Father Zosmore, he being oh, yeah. Um, so remember at the very beginning of the book when Madame Hochlakova, you know, comes to speak to him and says, "How can I? They tell me that." You know, the, the world is just material and that when I die, there'll be nothing but the birds growing on my grave. And there is no, you know, there's no meaning to life. It's just one material cause after another. How can I know it's not true? Can you prove it to me that there's meaning? Okay. And, you know, if, I guess this was some other writer, Zosimo <clears throat> would track, would, you know, trot out some standard theological proof of the existence of God or something like this, right? <clears throat> but he doesn't. He says something completely different. He says, you can't prove it. There is no proving God or meaning. But you can be convinced of it. You can be convinced. How? By how you live. If you live a life of active love, meaning caring for others' moments, not just at big moments, but at every moment, you will experience the meaningfulness of the world. You won't be able to present that as a theory to somebody else, because it's not a theory. It's an experience. You see, the problem with the philosophers, you know, let's say, I want to get my proof from Thomas Aquinas or Kant or something like that, um, is that they think that the way to know something is the way you would know it in mathematics, by reasoning from the theory down. But in human affairs, particularly moral affairs, you must go the other way. You go from the experience up. You become convinced of the meaning of things if you live the right sort of life. That's what he tells you. But it's not so easy to live the right sort of life, you know, because as she points out, oh, well, you know, yeah, I could go out and be a nurse, you know, to the poor and help. But I realize, you know, if I did that, I would demand payment and gratitude. I want people to think well of me. And then, well, in that case, you're not acting out of love for others. You're acting out of self-regard, yeah. right? You have to, that doesn't work. I mean, it's not bad to act that way, but you're not going to sense the meaning of things that way. It has to be genuine caring for others as the motive, not, you know, something you put on your resume. <laughs> Is, is that connection between experience and, and meaning uh, at, at the heart of, uh, say, the two dreams or visions that uh, the, the, the two other brothers have, Alyosha and Dimitri? So Alyosha has, you know, the, the dream version of the, the uh, Cana feast, and then Dimitri has the, you know, a, a vision of right the the, the woman, the, the poor woman, and her starving baby, and so forth. Uh, yeah, that, right. <clears throat> You're quite right. I mean. Um, for Adyosha starts out, remember the narrator describes him as a person with the same psychology as the revolutionaries of his time. The only difference is that he devotes it to God and they devote it you know, to achieving a, a utopia in this world. You know, that is, they say they both believe in miracles, only Alyosha knows they're miracles. Because the idea that you can achieve a utopia in this world by killing people, by revolutionary activity, I mean, that, that's even more miraculous. The people who spend their lives learning how to kill will suddenly become peaceful and nice when they get power. That would be the miracle, right, is the implication, right? Um, but he has that psychology. That is what matters is the big thing. The, you know, the immediate transformation, the word immediate appears sometimes, you know, the dramatic deed in the sight of all to achieve something dramatically like a revolution. The equivalent of a revolution is a religious miracle, right? A dramatic miracle. And that everybody sees. Um, and Father Zosimus tries to convince him this is not the right way to think. It's what you do at every little moment, I think. You're making a decision at every moment of your life, maybe several every moment, because every way you decide to look at another person, charitably or not, where to direct your attention, has more value. And those are the way, it's the sum total of those little things that make a life good or bad. And Anyosha doesn't get this <clears throat> until 
Father, um, when Father Seema dies, and Alyosha is expecting a miracle. You know, the expected miracle for a holy man was, to confirm how holy he was and how saintly he was, that his body <clears throat> would not stink, would emit a pleasant odor. And in this case, not only does Father Zosima's body stink, it stinks even <clears throat> more than usual. It's almost a counter miracle, right? Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> the funniest part of the book belongs to, you know, Madame Khochlokova, whose comment on this is, you know, I would never have expected such behavior from him. <clears throat> As if he could will it, right? Yeah. But the irony is that if he could have willed it, he would have. Because he wants to shock Alyosha out of a belief in miracles. Yeah. And so Alyosha, you know, in his despair, goes <clears throat> to Krushinka to ruin himself, right? But he finds her at a moment of crisis herself, and they both wind up helping each other, right? And she tells this wonderful story of the onion, right? Yes. You know, um, you know the story of the Russian folk story, right? Um, this wicked woman dies and is plunged into the lake of fire, but her guardian angel pities her and thinks, remembers that she did one good deed in her life. She once gave an onion. <clears throat> that is the cheapest possible thing to a beggar. Yeah, yeah. And so she runs to God <clears throat> and God says, okay, you take that onion and you pull her out of hell with it. So the angel comes down, holds out you know, the onion. You know, She grabs onto it. The angel pulls very, very gently so the stem doesn't break. Right, pulls around. And as her feet are clearing the water, other sinners grab grab onto them because they want to be pulled out too. Right, and then she, the the, the woman, looks down at them and starts kicking them up. No, it's my onion, not yours. And at that moment, the stem breaks, and she, you know, she hasn't quite learned. She has a chance to redeem her life by the one good deed, but she repeats one of the bad deeds. But the crucial thing is that the smallest possible deed, like giving an onion to a beggar, can matter. And when Alyosha leaves and goes back to the monastery, he hears Father Paisi reading the gospel over you know, the, the coffin of, of Father Zosima. And you get the story from the gospel that he reads. You get it quoted in between, you know, Ayosha's sort of in a dream state, um, falling asleep, not quite. And so his dreams sort of merge with the words of the gospel. And the story that is told is the story of Cana of Galilee, which is the least important of Jesus's miracles. We know how unimportant it is. It's only told in one of the four Gospels. Because Jesus says during it, my hour is not yet come. This isn't part of my mission. Right? And nobody even knows that he's performed a miracle except, you know, the servants who's handled the vessels for him and his mother. Right? It's a secret. It's not in the eyes of all dramatically. Right? It's, and he thinks this, hears this, Alyosha thinks, could it be that he, this was a poor person's wedding, it must be, they didn't have enough wine at a wedding, could it be that he came to earth to make people marry at poor people's weddings? And the basic answer is yes. He cares about the ordinary people and the ordinary. This is, okay, now you saying, this is the model Christian story that Dostoevsky selects for this book. It is the complete opposite of what, what he did in Crime and Punishment. Okay? In Crime and Punishment, he suggested the exact opposite. He did the most dramatic miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Right? He's rethought his theology by this point. No, no, it's the ordinary that really matters. 
And so then, you know, the onion, the theological expression of the onion is the Cana of Galilee story. So beautiful, so powerful. I think so, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, just uh, could you spend just a, a little bit of time talking about the reception of Dostoevsky's work in his time, uh, how it fared over the last uh, you know, century and a half since he wrote his, his major works, and, and, and thirdly, the third part of the question is, are we seeing something like a, a renaissance of Dostoevsky? Are, are more and more, are, is there any kind of sign that uh, you know, looks like in the academy or maybe on a popular level we're seeing more interest in Dostoevsky today? You know, I guess it says something today that Dostoevsky can hold his own when, you know, more and more classics are being, you know, dispensed with in, in the name of, you know, identity politics or pure theory or anything, right? Um, but I don't see a renaissance. I see him holding on. Okay. Um, and that, that may be because, at least in the academy, um, He's a Russian writer, and you know Russian experts are the ones primarily the ones who teach him. And you know one of the wonderful aspects of Russian culture is that more than any other culture in the history of the world, it respects literature. I mean, you know, we often might say, "Well, you know, literature exists to reflect life," but a Russian is more likely to think life exists to be made into literature. It's that important. Yeah. Okay. You know, there's a point when Dostoevsky is reviewing um, Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, <clears throat> as each piece comes out. And at one point he says something like this. Um, at last, the existence of the Russian people has been justified. Now, I can't imagine a Frenchman or an Englishman thinking that the existence of their people needed to be justified. But if they did, they would they pick the novel? I mean, American might pick the iPhone, I guess, you know, a piece of technology. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, no Frenchman or Englishman would, would. But in Russia, it's standard, you know. Then our most, you know, um, and there was a early 20th century writer, Karolyanska, and who was part Ukrainian. And he was asked <clears throat> what his nationality was. <clears throat> and he said, my homeland is Russian literature. And uh, Russia's most recent Nobel Prize winner, Svetlana Alexeyevich, you know, was not Russian at all. <clears throat> she was part Ukrainian and part Belarusian, although her language was Russian. <clears throat> and, you know, she said, well, you know, the same thing. My homeland is Russian <clears throat> literature. That's my identity. You know, it's, you know, for Russians, you know, their great literary works. Look, they love their scientists and their ballet dancers and their chess champions, and their composers. But literature is in a class by itself. It's way above everything else. So that the only thing I can compare it to is what it must have been like for the ancient Hebrews when you could still add books to the Bible when the canon was still open. That's it before the Book of Esther was written. When still that's how Russians view their literature. As a collection of sacred works that can still be added. Right? So, you know, people who teach Russian tend to absorb this enormous respect for literature. And so they're not going to give up Dostoevsky. I mean, look, even, you know, um, even the Bolsheviks, right, who um, were committed to an ideology that said, you know, <clears throat> bourgeois culture is bad. Can't. They were not going to give up their great literature, right? <clears throat> Maybe they could reinterpret it, but Tolstoy and <clears throat> not all of us, least <clears throat> a little of us, they they couldn't stomach the possessed, which is a satire on them, and Karamazov, which is too religious for them. But some Dostoevsky, all of Turgenev, all of Tolstoy, <clears throat> especially all of Pushkin, they're the wrong social class. Ideologically, <clears throat> a lot of people thought they shouldn't have kept on. But you, know, you weren't going to get Russians to get rid of their literature. Okay. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a favorite translation of um, the Brothers Karamazov? 
And if you do, why do you favor it? Well, first, I will tell you my least favorite translation, because it's the easiest to get. There's this team, Richard Prevere and Larissa Volokonsky, who translated a lot of Russian literature, and I guarantee you, for every book you find, there is the worst translation. <laughs> no question about it. I'm not the only one to think so, but a lot of people think the opposite. There's this um, the most popular, isn't it? Or the most widely disseminated? At the moment, probably is. Yeah. Um, and I find it, you know, you will not get the point of some passages. <clears throat> I mean, they do not believe that to translate a book you have to understand it. They believe you can do it mechanically, word by word. But words have more than one meaning. And if you don't understand what the author is doing, you pick the wrong one. Can you give us a salient example, please? Well, okay, from Karamazov. Um, uh, book four is entitled Lacerations from Tearing, right? right? And, you know, there's a reason for that because there's the psychological lacerations, the sort of masochism, but there's also physical lacerations. This is the book where, you know, Father Farrapond is beating himself and mm -hmm. lacerating yes. his flesh, <clears throat> and Alyosha gets his fingers lacerated by being bitten to the bone. These all relate to each other, right? So, Pavir and Volokonsky translate the word as strains. But you don't even get the laceration idea there, right? You know, the tearing. Yeah. You know, the key concept in Notes from Underground is the concept of spite, which is to say, what he means is an action you do simply for no reason except to show that you're free to do it. It's not in your self-interest, right? Therefore, it can't be predictable because it's just sheer spite. They translate this word, it's the key concept of the whole book. The whole book, which is about human freedom, it's about the possibility of this. They translate the word as wickedness. But it's not, a, the word can mean that, but it's not a book about wickedness. It's a book about this philosophical concept of spite. If you pick up the book, you miss the entire point of the book. So now let me go to the pot. This is true, by the way, of everything they translate, okay? I mean, you know, uh, you know, it's, if you read their version of The Master and Marguerite, a great comic novel, it isn't funny anymore. But you, to translate a comic novel, you need a sense of humor. <clears throat> well, what's the point? Well, the, the best translations of a lot of Russian <clears throat> literature are still by Constance Garnett, but the best ones of many works are Garnett corrected and revised by a later person, which sometimes exists. And for Karamazov, um, there's a version of Garnett corrected and revised by Susan McReynolds. It's a Norton critical edition, and that's the that's the one I would recommend. Okay. Um, and that's in print today. Yeah, it's it's recent. Yeah. It's like a few years old. When, um, when did when did Constance Garnett live? Beginning of the 20th century, I mean, early 20th century, she was, you know, you know, a member of that whole literary circle that would have included, you know, um, Arnold Bennett, Virginia Woolf, and all. She grew up around great writers, and she knew how novels were. The reason she's such a great translator is she understands the language of novels, the perspective of novels, how realist novels work, so she can get what the author is doing which you can't get if you don't own novels and just know the two languages. <clears throat> she was wonderful. She made some mistakes, you know, which you can correct. Um, but, you know, on the whole, there are a few exceptions. Um, uh, you know, her versions of, and I could give you the exceptions, but her version, versions of m most Russian works, if they're either the best or the revision of them is the best. Um, um, uh, to kind of piggyback on this topic of translators and on the quality of writing, can you tell us a little something about Dostoevsky's habits of writing? You know, how did, how did he accomplish his work? Uh, was he, you know, Dickens was hugely pro prolific and could crank out an enormous amount of work in a relatively short time, but oftentimes uh, we understand under pressure. You know, to, to deliver, you know, and also out of a concern to make money. <laughs> and uh, not entirely, uh, you know, without understanding there. But So how about Dostoevsky? What, what, uh, what were his habits of writing? Listen, the pressure Dickens was under doesn't compare with the pressure Dostoevsky. And there's one way you can tell. If you look at 
a novel like Bleak House, which is really one of the great English novels, right? It has this amazingly intricate plot where you discover on page 600 that a minor character on page 50, who was a throwaway character, is not a throwaway character, and this little incident, this little, it all ties together in an amazing, I don't know a better plot and not more complicated, right? and it's all obviously planned in advance. Right? You, in some cases, we have his notebooks planning this in advance. Right? Dostoevsky couldn't do that because he, I mean, there's this one, my favorite story is, you know, he's abroad with his young wife. Um, he's abroad because if he sets foot in Russia, he'll be thrown into debtor's prison. That's why he's abroad. He's run out of money. <clears throat> they won't send him food to his room anymore. He's starting to pawn his linen. <clears throat> They've already pawned their wedding rings, you know. And he's been writing this novel. He's also having his epileptic seizures. He was an epileptic. And he's been writing this novel, <clears throat> which isn't going very well. And he doesn't want to ruin it. So. We have his letter where he described December 4th, 1867. He said, I threw out everything I had done and I started something different with the same name, but different. And I thought, I wrote, I'll just send it in as I go. I have a good beginning. I don't know where it's going to go after this. And he says, maybe it will develop under my pen as I write it. I took a chance as at roulette. He was a compulsive gambler, right? Um, and he wrote this novel, which we know is The Idiot, scene by scene without a clue as to what was going there. That's why there were so many autobiographical passages in it, because we didn't know what to do. He had somebody talk about execution, because he, he could always do that, or talk about epilepsy, because he could always do that, right? And, you know, it's all over the map, this novel. It's brilliant, it's, you know, it's still a brilliant novel, but that's how he had to do a lot of writing. Not, you know, under that kind of pressure. Dickens never faced that one, right? Yeah. And, you know, um, so the only book that was not written that way really was Karamazov. <clears throat> because at that point, his wife had taken him in hand, taken their finances in hand, you know, figured out how to get a better deal from the publishers and then set up her own publishing house. I didn't have to cut, you know, you know, cut the middlemen in, right? And this was the first time he had could sit down and actually plan something. You can see it's planned because you know, you know, each book of Karamazov's like Lacerations, you have to be have carefully planned it to have all the chapters interrelated that way, like in that metaphor. Right? Um, he couldn't have done that in any other book, but Karamazov, it really is, it really is well planned. <clears throat> Not like Bleak yeah. House, but you know, it's still pretty well planned. Was he the kind of writer who just would shoot great text right off of his pen, or did he require some moderate or extensive level of editing? You know, what, what was the interplay between the writing and the editing? Well, he tried to, edit, you know, as much as he could, to the extent he had time, right? I mean, um, you know, um, and, you know, he planned things out in notebooks before, if he could. Right? Yeah. Um, I know with, with the idiot, he's writing these notebooks along with the novel, and that's how one of the ways you can know he doesn't know what's coming next. He says, Should I have so and so marry so and so? Or marry so and so? And he comes up all these plot lines that were not developed. Right? And, uh, but which are hinted <clears throat> in the text. You can see, oh, this is there to prepare for that plot line if it's developed, but then it isn't. Otherwise, you know, why is that there? It's like, you know, at the beginning, um, the hero, Michigan, has been raised by his benefactor named Pavlischev. And they were, somebody refers to, when he mentions Pavlischev, which Pavlischev? You know, there are two Pavlischevs. And then you never hear about the other Pavlischev. Why mention two Pavlischev if you're not going <coughs> to come back to it? You don't. The other shoe never drops, right? Because he was leaving the possibility open for a plot like that, right? You know, and that's what makes the idiot the peculiar book it is. He, so, yeah, he could revise things a bit, but not the way he would have wanted, except, you know, for Karamazov where he could. Right? Um, but the notebooks are absolutely fascinating. They, they have the drama of, they have real suspense. You know, not the suspense of, you know, crime and punishment, 
But the suspense of someone wondering if he's going to not commit a murder, but get the novel right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, feel the sus creative suspense. The notebooks are wonderful. They've been translated too. You know, um, as we're winding down here, I wanted to say that, the, and you and I talked about this before the interview, that I would say most of the people in our audience are teachers, and of those teachers, the the works by Dostoevsky they're most likely to teach are Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. So I thought maybe as the last question, as as an ex, you know the exemplar among teachers of Dostoevsky, what could you teach us? Um, can you give us sort of a final uh, tip or two about teaching those great texts? You know, uh, so, something out of your own experience, uh, maybe a pitfall to avoid, or or maybe um, something stellar to shoot for. You've got to make sure that well, first of all, you understand that they understand the core ideas. They don't. I mean, something like you know, um, the Grand Inquisitor. I can tell you that the most intelligent students um, don't get it. It's hard. So you, you have to explicate it, those key things for them, you know, in a way that, and then read the passages over, read the crucial passages over and sh interpret them line by line so they get how you get there. Uh, a broad view, just in the text of the whole without going into the particulars, um, won't do it. That's why, you know, you have to allow a lot of time, right? You know, when I I teach Karamazov, I, I, you know, give half a, a term to it, right? Um, I, I just, I just did that. And probably I could use more, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I would you know, do it with crime and punishment, too. A lot of the ideas are not obvious, you know. Um, why should it be? What exactly do they mean that if there is no God, all is permitted? Why should that be? Why should, let's say, materialism mean immoralism? Well, you know, sometimes I do it like this. You know, I, I take my pen and I drop it in front of the class and I say, so if I drop this pen, you know from your physics class it falls at 9.8 meters per second squared. Is that moral or immoral? And if they say it's a ridiculous question, says, yes, but if people are nothing but complex material objects, it makes no more sense to talk about them that way, because they're just complex pens. You can't get morality out of cause and effect. That's what it means that all is permitted, because morality becomes completely arbitrary. It's because what you're told is moral. I mean, societies can develop moral codes for their own benefit. That doesn't mean it is moral. It just means you'll get punished if you do it, right? But that doesn't make it moral. It just makes it a social convention. You know, it makes it basically no you know, murder no different from, you know, overstaying the parking meter, except that the punishment is worse, right? But is it really morally wrong to do certain things, even if you don't get caught? You, it's very hard to arrive at that if you simply believe that people are material objects. Okay? That, when you begin with that sort of thing, it's, these points of view are not obvious, okay? And you've really got to get down, you know, and explore the complicated ideas. You know, or the students just won't, you know, and I can tell you, you know, I've been teaching this for many years, you know, you know, my brightest Northwestern students who are really wonderfully superb, unless they, they're, they're sort of students who have, you know, already have read 25 great English novels and love them, they will have a lot of trouble with, with, with this. Okay, so you've got to take the trouble to get it yourself and then figure out a way of Explicating, communicating to them get. Otherwise, the point will be missed. Well, we're so grateful that you spent some time with us. And, uh, I, I personally am in awe of your your uh, command of uh, Dostoevsky, your your uh, wonderful wisdom about the books, and, and uh, your tremendous passion for it. And I, I think your students are very very fortunate, and very blessed to have you, and uh, we we are too for having a little bit of time with you. So, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. 
You can find our guides on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov at www.kanaacademy.org. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our producer is Helen DeSell-Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Classics.